On what would be his final combat mission as a Navy SEAL, Mike Day was shot 27 times at close range by four enemy fighters and absorbed a grenade blast. Despite being wounded, Mike was able to neutralize all four enemy combatants, secure two prisoners, rescue six women and children, and evacuate to an awaiting helicopter. He is a warrior of the highest caliber. Overcoming the odds from his childhood to the battlefield, he sets the example of toughness special operators strive to be. Retiring as a senior chief petty officer, he is now the author of Perfectly Wounded with a story that instills trust, hope, and selflessness in others. In Mike's words, you build self so you can serve the one next to you. All right, the Fundamentals of Winning podcast. I am the host, Jason Kuhn of Stonewall Solutions. And on this podcast, I like to bring on guests with stories of overcoming adversity and mental toughness and sharing the lessons that they've learned with others. Today, I'm extremely excited. I've got my brother, Mike Day, from the SEAL teams here to share his story. It's an incredible story that I've heard in the past from other people, and I'm very excited to have him on here to share firsthand the lessons that he's learned, not only from that moment, but also from his childhood and his career in the Navy. Mike, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty awesome, considering that I got shot 27 times, right? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) We're walking around, still breathing. That's right. So how I introduced you there, is that accurate? Is there anything to add, take away? Uh, no, you, you make me blush. You know, I, I don't like being the public eye. And when, I, when someone talks about that, you know, I just kind of, it's, it's amazing to me. You know, I was there and I don't believe, and I don't believe it, but I'm uh, very grateful. Yeah, I know. Life and, my, and the experiences that I've had. Right. And anyone that's met Mike will, will say that about him. And, and, and I understand that it's uncomfortable sharing your story, but we do appreciate uh, sharing the lessons that you've learned from it. And that's what it's about. Mike and I met at the Navy SEAL Museum down in Fort Pierce, Florida. If you haven't been down there, you need to go check it out. It's a really, really cool place. Uh, receiving a canine. How's your dog doing? Uh, I think she's starting to go into her teenage years. She just <laughs> turned a year, a, year, a year old last month, and she's getting a little feisty. Yeah. We're, we're working on it. She's awesome. Outstanding. Well, hey, Mike, tell us a little bit about your background as a young man and what made you decide to go to BUDS. For those of you that don't know, BUDS is the training that we go through to become Navy SEALs. It's six months long. And uh, so, Mike, tell us about your decision to, you said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL. Yeah, I wasn't, um, I wasn't driven there consciously. I didn't, I didn't um, have goals to go to the SEAL teams. I, I just kind of happened by it by accident and my life circumstances kind of, kind of drove me. I really, you know, <laughs> I really didn't have anything else to do. I had, um, I come from a, a pretty rough background, a very violent household. I, uh, got myself into a little bit of trouble. I got kicked out of high school. You know, I went through a, a program called the job courts, a government funded program. I went to the one in Baltimore. I received my GED there and I went through, uh, a few months of uh, vocational school where I received a a journeyman's license in carpentry. Um, and after that, I continued their program. I went from Baltimore up to Pittsburgh, and that was their college, uh, college program. And I just didn't last there. Uh, so all this is happening. I'm back in 
I'm back at home at 17 years old with a German's license for carpentry, and I can't keep a job because they can't insure me. So it's, you know, obviously I lied about my age uh, to get the jobs, and when they find out that, that I wasn't old enough, that I would get fired. So I couldn't sustain myself. Uh, you know, I'm 17 years old trying to take care of myself at this point, and I just had nowhere else to go. And I had a, uh, an old neighbor that told me about the SEAL teams. He was a retired Navy diver, and he was like, you're the perfect personality uh, for the SEAL teams. And I didn't listen to him. I tried to go join the Marine Corps. Uh, Marine Corps was like, like for the first time ever, and probably never again, wasn't accepting GEDs. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was uh, 1988. Okay. So I didn't know what to do after that. that Navy diver again told me about the SEAL teams. I went to the Navy recruiter. They didn't care about my GED and you know, boot camp, A school, buds. It was, uh, and luckily for me, it was, I love the Marine Corps and I love working with the Marine Corps with, uh, when we go do direct action missions, uh, they're, they're very professional and very good at, good at what they do. Uh, but the way they're structured, I, I, I would have lasted four years and I would have got out. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you this. I, I had a lot of mentorship growing up. I had, a, I had a good background, learned a lot of lessons on the baseball field, had a great dad, things like that. So that really helped me at Bud's was those lessons that I learned. It sounds like you had somewhat of the opposite of that. So how were you able to come from that background and then go to a course that, that, was, that, that was that difficult for, for those that don't know, Bud's has anywhere from a 70 to 80% attrition rate, meaning that many people quit or fail the training. So what were the things in your life from that time to boot camp to A school to whatever that you think helped you be one of the 20% that graduates? Well, I'm more amazed with people like you that had a good life when you're growing up. I know exactly how I got through Bud's. The SEAL teams were easy for me. Yeah. My... My my childhood was much worse. The SEAL teams were easy. Okay, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So you go from buds to to your team. You check into your team. Now you did a career. You were twenty one years and three months and retired from the Navy. What was your time like early on in the teams when you first got there up to the point of being a combat team leader? Oh, it was pretty awesome. You know, I, I graduated buds. Uh, showed up at field team three, did seven years there, you know, four deployments. Okay. Um, 19 years old on my first deployment. And, you know, we did this Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on back then. There was, you know, you know, back then, if you got to do like one real world hop on your six month deployment and you're like, you're all excited about it. Uh, the SEAL teams have changed a lot. They're, right. They've become a lot more sophisticated and have done a lot more work than we used to. You know, prepare for war, don't pray for it. Um, <laughs> be careful what you ask for. But we we are a lot different than we used to be. Uh, we were ready for war, uh, but there was nothing going on. And through my career, at, you know, at SEAL Team 3, uh, there were there was a couple things that were going on, you know, enforced trade embargoes over in the Middle East. Um, you know, doing shipboarding. Shipboardings, yeah. Uh, 
um, you know, the first Gulf War happened as I was at SEAL Team 3, but it happened so fast uh, that I never got out there. So my first deployment in 1990 uh, was to the Philippines. Okay. Um, you know, the, the world was, was a lot calmer back then. So you've really you've really seen the evolution and the escalation of things from the very first Gulf War all the way through to what year did you get out? Or retire, in 2010. In 2010, you retired. Yeah, in 2010. All right. So, so you have all of those experiences. You see all that develop, and then take us to the operation uh, where you were wounded. Talk us through what happened. Okay, so, well, just, just a real quick elevator brief. So, seven years at SEAL Team 3, uh, four deployments there, went to the Navy parachute team for three years, and guys used to make fun of us there. They're like, you guys are so non-operational. I'm like, well, what are you doing? I mean, <laughs> right. we, used to, we used to say TAD was uh, an acronym for traveling around drunk, not going to war. Right. You know? <laughs> Uh, then I, uh, showed up at SEAL Team 8, uh, about the time Kosovo was going on. So I got one deployment to Kosovo, a couple training commands, and then the SEAL Team 4, where I was doing, um, I did two, two deployments there. It was the second deployment, uh, to Iraq where I, where I was wounded. Um, the first one I did more, um, what do I call that stuff? You know, every, SEAL Team 4 at the time was doing a whole lot of, uh, PSD, uh, personal security details for the the top nine politicians in Iraq. Right, and that's like you know, uh, Secret Service type stuff, right? But but through the military. Yeah, and, and you know, none of us wanted to do that, and luckily <laughs> I didn't get to do it. And I got to do other things. So cool on that deployment. So I came back uh, from that one. I I did. I got to my platoon chief slot, uh, which was. Probably my favorite time in the teams. Uh, you know, learning how to work with different people when you're when you're expected to manage it. Yeah, I don't like to call myself a manager. It's, it's <laughs> because I didn't I I didn't do the work. I, I really didn't do the work. Everybody else did the work. The people around me were the ones that uh, um, made me look good because we all looked good. Sure. They're like, <laughs> it wasn't my fault that we were doing a good job. <laughs> Uh, the guys used to tell me, you know, get out of my back pocket. So I was, I was very fortunate to have a bunch of guys that knew, knew what the, you know, the end state was, and that's, and they didn't need any direction to get to the end state. They, everybody knew what the mission was. Right. Um, so you're saying, as a leader, uh, you know, to hit leadership here real quick, you would basically be very decentralized, like most of the platoons. You would give them a you know, a goal, a mission, an outcome that you want to produce and then just let them run and then help provide them the resources necessary to accomplish such. Would you agree, disagree, or what do you have to add or take away? Oh, I totally agree with that. Otherwise, they would tell me to shut up and get out of their back pocket. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, when, when you start to micromanage, that means you want to do that work. Right. Uh, and I think that it's, it's, it's somewhat... It, you, just, you just can't do it all. No, you can't, especially on the battlefield. And that's uh, what we learned real fast, too, was, you know, when things go south, you know, I saw a helicopter crash into a ship one time. And when that happens, you don't have time for everybody to get in line and take orders. Everybody's got to be empowered to make the decisions and execute their expertise. 
But in order for that to happen, you know, you got to have the right people in place and, and ultimately a leader like yourself that can make the decisions um, when necessary and or step up when the leader gets wounded, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we were good. We were good for that with SEAL teams. I mean, I mean, it's a hard community to be in because you're expected to perform. Yeah. Uh, just because you were good yesterday doesn't mean you're going to get a, a free ride today. Yeah, exactly. I was talking to uh, my co-author today and we were talking, we were talking about leadership and, you know, different types of leadership and the, um, some leaders think that they can be big bullies and make people afraid of them. I don't, I don't, I don't think that works. Um, you know, respect and trust has to be built. And I, I think I was more of a type of person that, you know, I know what the mission was. I know what the end state is, but it's really not my job to make that happen. It's, it's my job to make sure that the people that I'm working with have the resources to do it because they're yeah. the ones that make the mission happen, not the boss. All the boss is supposed to make sure in my mind is that, that the, that the people that are on that project have the resources and you know, whatever they need. So right, I, to execute the I, I spent more time taking care of people and they did, they took care of the mission. Yeah. Taking care of people. I'm, I, you know, you mentioned that. And so I, I was, I wasn't a platoon chief or, or a task unit chief by any means, but I did become a team leader at one point well before I was ready. And that was one thing that I learned the hard way. I forgot about the human element, you know, it was, hey, do this, do that for a bit. And then I recognized, man, I've got to develop relationships. I've got to show some empathy. I've got to show some appreciation for these guys to trust me and to be motivated to execute what I'm asking them to. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's really powerful. You agree with that as well? Oh, I do. If they don't trust you, they won't work for you. They right. won't, well, actually, I hate to say work for you. Work, they won't work with you. Right. So you learn your lessons of leadership. You, uh, you, you, know, you have your team, and you lead them out onto this operation. Take us through the operation. How, how, did, uh, how did it go down? Okay, so this, uh, this operation was our, our second attempt at it. Uh, three nights prior, we had done a vehicle-borne operation. Uh, in our Humvees and we got hit an IED and we, we weren't able to, nobody got hurt on that, on that particular one, <clears throat> but we had to, uh, disengage from that target that night. We came back, got helicopters three nights later, uh, did a helicopter insert, you know, foot patrol into the place. Uh, and the reason why we were on this operation was because they had shot down four uh, four helicopters, four medical helicopters. Okay. Everybody was killed on board. You know, they took all the uh, all the equipment and everything off off of it, off all four helicopters. And um, so that's the reason why we're going after these guys. Uh, okay. Do the insert, uh, foot patrol, get to the target. The initial breach team goes up. They they pop a door, and that room actually has no access to the rest of the house. The call comes out short room. I happened to be on the next door uh, that that we're going to use for entry. I open the door, get in there. Train comes in. There's two door, two doors in that room. Small okay. room. It's just small foyer. Um, I stack on the door to the left. 
and I guess I'm, I'm going to start talking about <laughs> yeah, just no. You're good, man. I mean, just yeah. Be careful with the tactics, and uh, you know, just yeah, the general, the generalities here. So I get in, uh, I get into that foyer, and I'm holding on two threats. I need somebody else to come in. Um, a guy that's on a second deployment, 27 year old SEAL uh, who was killed in action on this operation. Yeah, was um, who was on the initial breach team. So it's amazing that he had to come all around all those people to come in there and help me out. And I couldn't open one door without somebody working the other one. Okay. And he came in. Everybody saw. Hey, this is the way it's supposed to happen. Clark went to that door. The train split. We were able to action both of those doors. And as I um, opened my door, it hit the right wall. The whole right wall was clean. I, I was coming off my pivot foot, and there was four people uh, in my room. Two of them had AK-47s, one had a pistol, and one of them had an M4 from a previous. And it actually wasn't even from the helicopter. Uh, it, said that, um, it was from um, another ambush uh, on a unit that was out in Ramadi. Yeah, so these guys and, aren't necessarily uh, ragged. They, they have some experience because these are weapons that they've taken off of Americans. Yeah, they, gotcha. they actually had the dudes. They had his M4, his pistol, his helmet, his night vision goggles, his load-bearing equipment. His magazine still had his name, name on it. You know we have to put our names on our magazines because your buddies will steal them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and all that equipment was eventually returned you know, after this operation uh, to the unit, but it wasn't even associated. You know, all that equipment had nothing to do with any of the four helicopters. So that should, that just showed that they were, you know, busier than just shooting down helicopters. Right. Because uh, all the, all that equipment was taken from a vehicle ambush that they did on a on an army unit. So I, I can't even come come off my pivot foot before they, they just beat me to the trigger. I was the number one guy to the, into that room. And this, it just it just happened so fast that I, I couldn't shoot them faster than they could shoot me. Yeah. Uh, everything started going, and this happens to me a lot in my, in my life, usually just in very high-stress situations. I'm trying to figure out how to do it when you know, do it on purpose. <laughs> but like time, slow, time slows down. Right to uh, to like, uh, I mean, it, it, it's literally like being Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. Right. I mean, I was. It was so slow motion that I can. I was watching bullets fly away from me that I was firing. I was I was able to see the spin on the bullets. Wow. And I could see the one, and I could also see the ones coming at me. And there was vapor trails. Uh, I could see the vapor trails coming off of the rounds, and. I have so very vivid memories uh, from this. I, I actually doubt myself. Do I, am I making this up? Right. Or did it actually happen? But I've had other experiences too. You know, falling out of trees as a kid. Um, uh, parachute accidents. Uh, you know, being in wraps. I've never been injured in a parachute. But, you know, I've had eight cutaways. And eight. Every one, every one of those times uh, Jeez, was pretty violent events, and time slowed down for me there. Yeah. And so, I've experienced that, Mike. One time I've experienced that where the, the, with the time slowing down. Now, I wouldn't say that I could see vapor trails and bullets, 
but I absolutely understand what you're saying there and 100% believe what you're saying there. And describe, you know, when you say a small room, that might mean different things to different people. About, about how big are you talking or is this engagement? How close is this engagement? You're pretty much on top of each uh, other, right? It's a square room, anywhere from 12 by 12 to 15 by 15. It's yeah. very small. <laughs> right. Um, so time's slowing down. You're seeing the bullets and the vapor trails and things and uh, pick back up where you left off there. Sorry. No, I told you, you had, I go off on tangents and you have to bring me back on. <laughs> no, you're good, man. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that's happening. I actually had a conversation with myself. I'm like, I, I asked myself, are you getting shot? I've never been shot before. Right. And, and I had this whole conversation as my rifle's being shot out of my hand and I'm transitioning to my pistol as I'm still, my legs are coming out from underneath me because I'm being shot. In the movies, they show somebody getting shot and, and you're getting thrown back. That's not the way it happens. Okay. I've never been shot either. I, so. I, I just lost all control of my legs and I was falling forward uh, as I lost my rifle transitioning to my pistol and I killed the guy down the left wall and I landed next to him. And when I say slow motion, I understood that he was dead before I even hit the ground next to him because I watched him die. Okay. I, I shot him like six times in the chest and, and in the face, and, and I watched the life leave his eyes. And I saw that in slow motion. As you're hitting as the ground? Falling. Yeah, so that whole, that whole process right there that I just described probably took about Four to six seconds. Yeah. It might, as well, it might as well have been three minutes to me. Um, so I hit the ground next to him, and I still have my pistol, and there's a guy that's trying to run out of the room. I didn't know it, but he had pulled a pin on a grenade, and he was going to run out in the hallway and blow up the guys in the hallway. And I shot him. He fell to the ground, blew up. That knocked me out. Okay. Well, usually when I tell the story, I try to explain what happened behind me. So my number two guy that that followed me in the room got shot in the chest and it knocked him out of the room. The number three guy got shot in the chest and he died in the doorway. Those were both Iraqi scouts. Okay. Clark, Clark Schwedler, who had entered that other room, around passed through both doorways and hit him in the neck. And that's what killed Clark. Right. Um... The guys try to get in the room. There's still two two guys in the room. I don't know why they didn't get knocked out by the grenade like I did, uh, but they couldn't get in the room because uh, they were still, you know, sawing up the door jam. They were just tearing it up. I'm unconscious. I can't respond on radio. And and the guys decide to pull out and use a, an air asset uh, to blow up the to blow up the target. And, you know, luckily we have uh, standard operating procedures that don't allow us to drop bombs anymore if you don't know where everybody is. <laughs> right. So they, they, did, they did pull out. Nobody actually saw me go in that room other than our Iraqi scouts who couldn't, couldn't let the, our guys know. Um, and I have to, have to say the Iraqi scouts are guys that we trained. Right. We had like a little buds class. Uh, it wasn't, I call it a buds class, but we were trying to make counterparts out there. It wasn't but and you, the first class we had. 
the first the first group of people we had show up was fifty dudes. We asked them to do ten push ups, and forty of them quit. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's kind of what you're up against. And so, but, but these we weren't guys. You, this wasn't just an asset that you went and asked to go out with you. These were guys that you had at least some time to train. So what I mean yeah, is, we, for me, we would just we, we just had a group we would go get, but we didn't train them. No, we actually had. Um, we had pulled them from the second and fourth Iraqi army brigade and we were training them. Okay. It was just a man. We were doing so much stuff on this deployment. <laughs> we, we built, we built swap. We were working second and fourth Iraqi army brigade. We had like, I call it buds. I don't know what to call it. Iraqi army scout school. Okay. There you and, go. and, and, and that was a process. You want to talk about leadership? Uh, we spent the first half of that deployment. We had to do everything until they we could figure out how to get them to trust us, right? And us to trust and us to trust them. And when that happened, it was such a cool transition. They started emulating our guys, okay? Because our guys took care of them. You know, they did not just train them. You know, they did training all the time. But it was like, hey, we can help you fix your barracks because they're they're milled. You know, their leadership wasn't doing it for them. Right, sure. Our guys, our guys would take their free time and they'd go help them build, you know, make their lives better where they live. And it built a trust and um, it was great to see how, how, that, how that happened. Right. You know, they didn't trust us at all. We didn't trust them. And when you start seeing that and they start emulating you. And we, you know, we came up with a little patch for them. You know, they wanted to be called the Scorpions. Okay. Uh, we got patches for them. They, they were painting that stuff on the side of their trucks. They're acting like the Iraqi version of, of Navy SEAL team guys. Taking some pride in what they're doing, right? Yeah, they were. Yeah, that's they cool. They were off. Awesome. And when we first started, it got, we, we had trouble recruiting people. And by the end of that deployment, we. We couldn't even handle all the people that wanted to come work with us. Oh, yeah. All right. That's cool. Okay. So that was a tangent. Uh, so no worries. Yeah. So basically, you've got a group. Behind me. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and they couldn't come in the room. Everybody, everybody bails out. Hey, we're going to blow this place up. I wake up as they're departing the target. And I wake up to two guys on the other side of the room, somewhere between you know 10 and 15 feet away from me. Okay. I'm laying next next to a dead guy that's up against the wall. There's a window above us. And those two guys are on the other side of the room with their backs against the wall uh, with two AKs shooting at the guys that are departing. I wake up to that. And I'm not going to lie. My first thought, I would, it scared the hell out of me. I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I was like, maybe I should play possum. That was my first thought. Yeah. It, running through your options. <laughs> well, it didn't last long that I got really pissed off again and started to re-engage him. But when I was unconscious, um, I got shot a couple times and I can't explain any other way than they came over and shot me when I was unconscious. So okay. I got shot twice in the back. Uh, the holes are in the body armor, shattered my right scapula. And I had two, two bullets in my butt. Uh, Somebody had to stand over top of me to shoot me in the butt, and they had to sh they had to jam the the weapon system into my body armor to get the rounds into my back that were in my back. Okay, so maybe it was uh, they were trying to finish you off there and just didn't realize that it didn't. 
that was poorly well, executed. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they assumed that I was because they did do that. I've got you. And so I re-engaged them when I woke up. So I don't think they were really concerned about me. But they eventually realized, hey, that, that dude's shooting at us again. And they started shooting back at me. But I, to explain this, so I, I put about, it's a 15-round magazine. I don't keep 15 rounds in because it messes the spring up. So I keep 14 rounds. I always keep one or two less than the magazine's capacity. Okay. So it doesn't mess with the spring and the feeding system. Um, so I'm a little, um, 15 rounds. I might only have 13 rounds in my mags. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say what weapon system it was. But... I ran that mag dry before I think they realized I was shooting at them. I was in a magazine change when they started shooting at me. Okay. One of the rounds from the AKs hits the foot of my magazine, blows the hand grips off, the hand grips off my pistol. I have to open my hands to drop all the, all the crap from the, uh, from the broken hand grips. And I have to clear the malfunction. You know, that's that, what we know is tap rack bang. So okay. You hit the bottom. You hit the bottom of the magazine. You work the slide again, and you pull the trigger. That's that's the malfunction drill, and it actually worked. And I, I wound up uh, killing both of those guys. Um, I didn't know everybody had left. Uh, I get up on my hands and knees, and I ask for status in the house. One of the Iraqi scouts. We had three Iraqi scouts that had penetrated into the back of the house through the door that Clark had penetrated through. And they couldn't come back through because of the volume of fire that continued to go through both of those doorways. Uh, so luckily, you know, they got stuck back there because it was one of the first guys, one of the guys I trusted more out of all, all those Iraqi scouts. And his English was pretty good. And he explained to me what happened, you know, what was going on. You know, okay. we had one dead Iraqi scout, one dead seal. We had six women and children in the back. We had two detainees in the back. So I get up, and I uh, find the women and children. I get them calmed down uh, through uh, a little bit of screaming. And I find Clark. Uh, Clark is gone. I go into further in the house. I find the other two Iraqi scouts. Uh, they're holding on two detainees. I check both of those flex cuffs. I bring one up to watch the women and children, put one on the front door, tell them not to let anybody come in, and then I try to call the guys. And... Uh, realize that my radio has been shot multiple times and it's not working. So okay. I have to take Clark's radio off of him and I reconnect all my stuff up and I call the guys back in, deconflict the front door and they come into the house and I, I knew I'd been shot, but I didn't know I was that messed up Right. until I saw the, until I saw the guys look at me. That's when I was like, man, I must be, must be pretty jacked up. <laughs> the, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, uh, where where people's body language and and their and their facial expressions just. You know, I kind of thought I was okay. Not on that level, brother. Until until you looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the guys come in, clear the house, target secure. I heard that you walked to the radio. Is that true? Or to the helicopter? Is that true? I did, and, and they didn't realize when they had gotten. Back in the house, that had been up walking around. Um, I had put myself back in the room. 
my, the initial room that I entered uh, where I killed those four guys because I felt safe in there because I, I knew they were all dead. I actually put a couple rounds into all of them after. Okay. <laughs> so let's break this Laughable. down. Um, let's break this down, Mike, because I've got something, a couple things I want to ask you. Is there's a couple of things that stick out to me that are really amazing to me. You said, you know, once, once the engagement was complete for the most part, you asked for the status in the house. Then you found the women and children and secured them. Then you called the guys and managed, even shot up like that, to disconnect a radio, which it's not real easy for those of you guys that don't know. It's, 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 it's pretty intricate. It's not super easy to just unplug it and plug it into yours. There's a few things you have to connect, and they're not super easy to put together. And then I actually, I actually tried to explain to the Iraqi scout to do it for me because my left thumb was shut off. Right. Almost completely. <laughs> and then your mind shifts to your team, right? And rather than focusing on, hey, am I going to die? Am I going to bleed out? How many times am I shot? Whatever, your mind, which, which is just fascinating, goes to your team. Hey, I need to deconflict the front door. I talk about mechanics and the habits that we create, all in how we do what we do, how we shoot our gun, how we operate our radio, right? I talk, well, about, muscle, uh, muscle, I talk about habits. Say it again. Muscle memory. Exactly. But I talk about habits also in mindset and culture, how we treat each other every day. So you talked about building respect within your team, both the Iraqi team and your, and your platoon members, and trust within each other. And I believe all those things that we do prior to these moments make us who we are when it matters most. So my question is, is how, how much do you feel the habits that you created, both in your personal character and in your performance in training, played a role in your ability to perform the way you did in that moment and ultimately survive? Well, a word that keeps popping up a lot here is trust. And a, a team of people that doesn't trust each other and they don't trust who's supposed to be leadership, and I've seen this. And it's, it's uh, even in our community, uh, everybody's got their 5%. If you, if the people don't trust that you're competent, they're definitely not going to follow you. Right. If they don't trust that you're going to take care of them, they're definitely not going to follow you. And, I mean, that's, that's what I learned in the SEAL teams. You know, luckily I, you know, I did eight platoons. And I, I was, there's always little clicks, you know. Sure. These two guys, these two little guys hang out together. These two little guys are, there's a little animosity here and there, but they still trust each other. Yeah. As I say, brotherhood doesn't mean we all like each other all the time, right? We set aside our differences yeah. to serve a cause. <laughs> and uh, actually, say, go ahead. You don't. You don't. You don't even have to like a person to trust them. Absolutely. That's, that's why I said there's seals I, I didn't um, like that I don't like and probably never will, but I go to war with all of them. <laughs> yeah, and that's because of that word trust. Yeah. So. I, I think it is, you know, it, morally, the SEAL teams, they, they teach how to give, how they have, how to have good relationships. And it's, and it's because we definitely depend upon each other to do the right thing, to do what you're supposed to do, to do what you said you said you were going to do, because you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And, and let me, uh, let me ask you this, Mike. So say like for a football player. 
who is wanting to make sure that when the pressure's on and, you know, in a big giant stadium and a national championship game, conference championship game, or a baseball player, when the pressure's on and they want to know that they can execute their fundamentals of their mechanics, of how they throw the ball, of how they catch the ball, of how they block tackle. Um, and you were able, like you said, my gun explodes in my hand, but I worked the malfunction anyways. This happens, whatever. And you were able to still execute those prop processes those fundamentals under extreme stress. Where do you believe that come from? How were you able to perform those mechanical functions under that pressure? And how would you relate that to, you know, sports teams who want to teach their players that same thing, to be able to execute those actions under pressure? Well, I think that's the two-part answer. The first is the reason why I did it and how I did it. So how I did it was I trained and trained and trained and trained. There you go, yeah. Which, uh, which when, when I get to a point where, like when I first started learning how to jump out of airplanes, they would tell me, hey, Mike, if you want to turn right, you do this with this arm, you do this with that leg, and you do that. I don't, if I want to turn right when I jump out of an airplane now, I don't think about that because I'm going to, I'm a, I did the crawl, walk, run. I had to train myself to the point where I didn't have to think consciously right. about how to do, do simple things. Uh, in that gunfight, I lost my rifle. I, I did, I don't know how many transition drills where, I, where my rifle goes down and I got to go to my pistol to use my secondary. Right. I, I, that was not a conscious thought when I did that. Did it until you couldn't get it wrong, right? Oh man, I, I always, I always used to say, if you're, if you're using your pistol or throwing hand grenades, you're in a bad situation. Yeah. I never thought I'd be in it. You know, right? You got your, your old trusty M4. You think that's always going to be, be, be good enough? You don't want to imagine a situation where you're drawing your pistol, or. Or, or hooking grenades, which I wish I would have done that night. I wish I would have hooked a grenade in that room. <laughs> yeah, well, it's always, those things happen so fast, it's always easy to look back later and think, yeah, I should have, could have, you know, and, and done this, that, and the other thing. But um, so crawl, walk, run, right? And I tell people a lot of times, if you want to be a pro, then do what pros do. And sometimes you got to get out there and you got to go through those sometimes monotonous, long days of getting those things down until they become just a part of who you are until that weapon or that football or baseball is an extension of your body in a sense. And I want to move on here now and ask you the name of oh, your, hold on, hold on go ahead. Part. Yeah. So send the, it. Send it. Uh, the, the second part of that is why I did it. And I didn't do it for self-satisfaction. I did it to make sure that I didn't screw over my buddy. Right. I knew that I had to be the best I could to make sure that the guy next to me didn't get screwed because I was not doing what I was supposed to do. And that's why the SEAL teams are so cool. Uh, because I think that's more of the reason why we do any of it. Yeah, it is. is the guy next to us. Now, I mean, you, you get some guys that are, you know, like I said, one way. Uh, everything is there. All their goals are self-based. Uh, it's not because of the guy next to them. It's because they, they want to get something done for themselves. 
Right. And and I, I think you should build yourself as a person to be the best person you can so you can be more helpful to the people around you. And I do think uh, building self is more important than anything. But you build self so that you can so you can serve the one next to you. That's awesome, brother. And I completely agree. And I think that's why Buds and Hell Week is so very important. And the way I relate that to groups for them is, you know, you have to uh, you have to have some sort of process to vet people before they come in so that you're starting with people of high character prior to. Of course, people uh, may sneak through the ranks or whatever else, but they, you know, they'll, they'll get found out and weeded out at some point. But starting with people who have that selfless nature and then building it within your culture until it becomes a part of who you are, because Mike, most people in the situation you're in are going to, they're going to default to self-preservation and you see it in sports. You see it in business all the time when a little bit of adversity sets in, that's not life-threatening. We have that human instinct to default to self-preservation. So like you said, you build yourself, but you be intentional about it well before that day ever comes so that you can respond in the way that Mike did and be that kind of person and, and leave a legacy and influence others. And it's amazing, man. And it's just, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Why the name Perfectly Wounded? Mike has a website called perfectlywounded.com where you can find out more information on him and his uh, events where he shares his stories and lessons learned and a book that will be out shortly. Why the name Perfectly Wounded, Mike? Uh, well, I was. Uh, th- this actually happened afterwards. I, Perfectly Wounded came from an ER doctor that I came across and I was telling him about uh, about this incident, and not so much about you know, you know the mechanics of how I got shot, but where I got shot. And it was it was he that coined uh, the term "perfectly wounded," because the guy that was talking, uh, the third person in the conversation, was like, "How can you explain this?" And he was like, "He was just perfectly wounded," and it, it's kind of. When I heard that, it, it hit me. Um, that that's been my whole life. Now, my 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 childhood was a train wreck. It was very violent. I don't know how I got through that. I don't. I don't even know how to explain it yet. That it was. It was terrible, but not enough to take away the fighting spirit that I had. Um, because the wrong way to go and it, and it happens, you know, when you lose hope and you don't, you don't have that fighting spirit anymore, you become the victim. And then you start waiting for everybody else to fix your stuff because you're now the victim because it's somebody else's fault. So now you're waiting for somebody to fix it. I, I somehow never found, found that mindset. Uh, and I was perfectly wounded as a child, just enough. I was just abused enough so that I had to fight harder, not abused enough to where that spirit was killed. And, and but that happens to a lot of our kids in this country. We, you know, I say in my book that my, um, I don't blame my parents cause I understand where they came from and they did the best they could, but they were shitty parents. And I know they weren't their only shitty parents. But, you know, it benefited me. It could have gone the other way. 
I, I could have been the victim. I, I, I could have. I'm not a whole lot different than 80% of the people that are in prison. I just had a different opportunity. Mike, is that what you hope people gain the most from sharing your story? Is hope? Well, you, you gotta have hope. Yeah. Um, if you don't, then you, then you are a victim. That's an incredible story, man. Like I said, I appreciate you taking the time to share it and. It is a story of hope. It's powerful. If, where can people find more information? So we got perfectlywounded.com. You can go find more information about Mike Day. Have him come speak to your team about overcoming adversity, leadership, and a host of other topics. Go on there, pre-order his book. And where else can people find information on, on you, Mike? Well, this is something I'm pretty happy about. My daughter, my oldest daughter, okay. is my my graphic designer, she used my GI bill to go through school. Cool. Now I'm paying her to do my branding and my website. Outstanding. And she, she created my website, uh, perfectlywounded.com, where there's a link uh, to purchase the book, which is being released uh, 9 June. 9 June. 9 June. And she's going to get my social media in order. But you know, like right now, I, I could be found on social media. On Instagram at Mike Day fifty three twenty six, which you know might change because my daughter tells me I'm not doing stuff right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you tell her to call no, me too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, yeah, it was it was great being on with you, Jason. Um, we need to work on getting you a dog. Yeah, that's a uh, yeah, that's another story in and of itself. But yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> we do. And, um, I would how so you, uh, you're enjoying having the dog that's going well. Yeah. Like I told you earlier, I think she's starting a little teenage thing. Right. <laughs> having a Belgian Malinois, you know, one of these dogs, it definitely makes you work. <laughs> it, uh, you, you can't sit on your, on your back end. You, you have to make sure that they're taken care of. And I, I like having her there for that. Right. She also helps me to be, uh, more, uh, deliberate in my communication and and more mindful. She actually helps me be more mindful. More mindful. She yeah. Makes me more, yeah. I need some of that <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Well, um, let's wrap this up here. But again, it's Mike Day, perfectlywounded.com. You can find him at Mike Day 5326 on Instagram. Pre order his book. Have him come in to speak to your team. Um, I'll get this, uh, this up soon. If you want to find more podcasts on my side, it's at stonewall-solutions.com, the fundamentals of winning podcast. you find stories about mental toughness and leadership. Mike talked about building trust within your team, giving them goals and missions to accomplish, and you providing the resources for them to do it. And without hope, we really don't have much of anything. And uh, Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and we'll talk to you, talk to you next time, brother. Thanks, Jay.